Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Welcome to the Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today from the Springfield City Council is Leonard Stair. Leonard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Patty. Thanks for having me on the show. This is really an honor. Uh, I haven't really uh, had the chance to formally talk to you. We've talked a little bit on social media prepping for this. And uh, the more I read and the more I research about this uh, interview, the more impressed I am with your resume. Uh, it's very, it's very much a Springfield story, even though you're kind of an implant, uh, you know, and we're going to go ahead. It's kind of a motley resume. Yeah. Right. And so I think you could probably say it's checkered. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think it definitely is very reflective of the Springfield community. And I'll get to why I think that in a bit, uh, before we get started, uh, I want to talk about you know, how you can support the podcast. So the podcast is always free, but if you'd like to support the show, you can go to strpod.com for PayPal and Patreon links to become a monthly donor. And starting now, starting today, uh, you can go to Venmo. Anybody listening can go to Venmo and you can make a one-time donation on Venmo and it's at spent the rent. So for anybody that would like to support the podcast, uh, you can do that. Uh, so Leonard, thank you so much. Do you mind if I call you Leonard? Is that all right? That's what I go by. <laughs> so I'm so bad about that, about using people's titles and all that stuff. And I know I should be a little more professional, but thank you so much for doing this. What, uh, you, you, I, I I don't go by counselor at all. So yeah, don't, yeah, it's but don't, don't stand on ceremony here. Sure. So let's start out with talking about some of your early days. So you grew up in Georgia, is that correct? No, um, I was a Navy brat. I moved every two years when I was growing up. I moved to Georgia when I was 21. Okay. So um, as a Navy brat, do you have what you would consider to be like a childhood home base or is it like the world? <laughs> you know, um, I, I would say that, um, yeah, I, I would say it's pretty much the world and wherever workers are. Sure. Sure. I mean, that's the, that, that, that's pretty much where home is. Yeah. So one of the things that I was reading about that kind of caught my attention was that early on you had studied English at Harvard college, but ultimately decided to join the working world and found yourself working in freight as a truck driver. Tell me about the early yes. days and what was going on through your what was going through your head at Harvard that led you to change course. Okay, well, I was an English major, and um, near the end of my sophomore year, um, it started to sort of come into focus that you had roughly three career paths as an English major. You could uh, go to law school. I, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, you could become an English instructor. Um, I wasn't really um, into teaching, although I think it's an honorable profession. Um, and uh, you could also drive a cab. And I thought, well, hell, I could just drive a cab now. I mean, I thought maybe it would be 
um, as uh, exciting as I thought it would be. And um, I, I never actually drove a cab. I wound up being a construction grunt right out of college. But yeah, I uh, I, I don't have any regrets. I, uh, I I love, I still read a lot. I still um, am definitely a fan of writers and literature, but it's not something that I do full time anymore. I've definitely noticed that from your Facebook feed, just reading the kind of, the things that you're into. You, you've got like an eclectic taste you know, very appreciative of art and film and music. Music is huge. I, I know that you're a big, big music guy. Uh, and this is this is kind of why I thought that you had such a Springfield story is that, you know, working in, in construction, like you had just said, and freight uh, that I'd like to talk a little bit about t- today. Uh, but you have probably bumped elbow. I know that you've bumped elbows with such a wide spectrum of individuals. And that's that's really important when you're going to be in, in city government, you know, or in any government. Because I think that you need to kind of be able to listen to people that uh, are from all, you know, different belief systems and whatnot. And and in organized labor as well. I think it's important just to be able to go out to a gate somewhere and be able to talk to anybody that should be passing through. So how did you get involved? I agree with that. How did you get involved with freight? Um, so I was in a, uh, I was working for about 12 years in a warehouse, um, in Georgia and the, the, the observation that I made after about 10 years was that the truck drivers that were coming in and making deliveries were seeming to be having a lot more of a good time than the people who were working on the dock were. And so I thought this might be something I want to look into. I found out that there was, in fact, a community college that was offering classes. This was 93, offering classes in how to get a commercial driver's license. And then I, uh, I dropped out of the um, out of the job on the warehouse dock and uh, much to everyone's scorn and went for 11 weeks to DeKalb Community College and got my commercial driver's license. And then I got a job shortly thereafter at ABF Freight System, so when you start, which is a union carrier. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. When you start out, is it all independent or is it a union deal? I mean, are you still an independent worker? I, I mean, um, saying when you're I, doing that, when you're doing that, when you're, when you're working in freight as a driver, even as a union guy, are you still kind of on your own? Like you have to have your own truck and all that kind of stuff? It's a very hard life for the independent truckers out there right now. God bless them. I mean, because they're being pinched and squeezed by these large um, truckload carriers and are getting constantly undercut on their rates. I, um, I, you, you probably heard this joke. Um, there was a farmer that won the lottery, and they asked him what he was going to do. He said, "I'm going to keep farming until it's all gone." <laughs> and so I, I think it's pretty much the same case for an independent trucker right now. I mean, they're barely they're they're really just hanging on by their fingernails and trying to make their truck payment. I mean, uh, then there's insurance, there's fuel. God knows what a truck an independent trucker is doing right now with diesel six dollars a gallon. I, right. I can't even imagine. So when you started out, were you um, but, were you working completely independently, or were you working with a crew where you're more of an employee? I was I was an employee from the very start. Um, I, I was an employee for a couple of non-union companies uh, right off the bat, but I never I never bought my own truck. I never really aspired to buy my own truck because I knew what headache it was going to be. I barely wanted to do my own taxes, you know. Sure, and, and it's a very hard 
it's a very hard life. Well, and I'm an independent contractor barber, and sometimes the idea of ownership is really enticing because you want to set your own pace and kind of control the, you know, the the just be the boss, you know, you know. But understood. It's, it's not necessarily worth the trade off, you know. Sometimes it's it's better to just be the worker, you know, and and not have all the over, other headaches. So. Now, what I found, what what I what I found enticing about being a trucker was that once you've left the yard, you can more or less tell yourself that you don't have a boss. You always do. I mean, there are dispatchers on either end, and they can call you at any time. But for the most part, they leave you alone, just let you do your job. Yeah, and it's not it's not bad. So I wanted to ask you about something kind of I thought was really kind of fun. So it, it I I googled uh, Leonard Stair <laughs> trying to research for this episode. And it turns out you were an uh, guest on Jeopardy uh, back in was it two thousand three? Yeah. Is that correct? Two thousand three. Yep. Yeah. Tell sure me. Was. So f- right, and f- right, f- right, right before the Iraq invasion. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good timestamp. Uh, so f- it was a yeah. four episode stint. So you did okay. You did pretty good on it. Tell me what that experience was like. Right. I had um, I had tested a total of six times. Um, they uh, they called me to be on the show um, one time before that, and I had been. A uh, uh, my my grandmother was very ill and was about to die at that point, and so I knew that my head would not be in the game if I were to go out there at that point. And I said, "Look, I really appreciate the opportunity, but I can't do it at this point." And so I went back and I tested for the show again. Um, that at this time it's all online now, but at the time you actually had to go downtown um, to your chosen city and take a written test and then a I'll play a mock game with the buzzers. And um, so you, um, it was, it was a very um, sort of a long shot, sort of a moon, sort of a moon shot to get on the show in those days. And I, um, I, they, they did call me again. And so I thought, okay, it's now or never. And I went out and uh I was very lucky to win the first game. Um, I, uh, it was one of those things where um, everything changed in Final Jeopardy, and then I, I won, um, I, I won the second and third games fair and square, and then the fourth game I was just steamrolled by this guy who was a stay-at-home dad and uh, beat me to the buzzer every time. That's that's so but cool. It you was know, a, it was a good game. What an experience, you know. And I mean, is it? Is it all pomp and circumstance like the studio when you're in there? Is it pretty neat or is it just like the magic of television where actually it's like kind of looks all, you know, like a facade? Ma- magic of television. The uh, the studio, uh, the, the studio appointments are not at all elegant. Uh, I mean, they're uh, and, and by the way, the people that are there as your handlers could not be nicer or more cordial. They, they make you feel right at home. Um, but the uh, that there's not it, it it doesn't look like Television City in Hollywood. It looks like a it, it looks like a studio. It's like a warehouse. I yeah. Mean, with a yeah yeah. So now tell me about what led you to Springfield. So I mean yeah you can tell me about that and then we'll go from there. Um sure. I um after I had been a road driver for twelve years at ABF, I had become the, uh, the shop steward. Um, with my drivers, there were about 250 of us when I got on, and then the um, local um, invited me to run with 
the the leadership at my at my Teamsters local invited me to run as recording secretary over there at the uh, at the union hall, and I did. Um, I served for six years, and I supported a candidate um, for Teamsters president named Tom Leadham, who is a uh, affiliated with a uh, sort of a breakaway faction of the Teamsters called uh, Teamsters for a Democratic Union. We, we advocate for rank and file activism and um, what we combat is top-down leadership that doesn't um, value transparency with the members. And so Tom lost that election, but after the election, he asked me if I would consider um, becoming, a, um, becoming a rep at his local out here in Oregon. And we have an office in, in Portland, but we also have an office in Springfield, and this is where I wound up. And I, I, I've got to say I lucked out. I landed in Clover, as they say. And what year was that? That was 2011, is that correct? 2011. Okay, yeah. cool. Sure was October. October yeah. 2011. When did you decide that you were going to run for city council? Um, that, was tw- that was 2016, and I was recruited. Um, I, I was recruited, um, and uh, a, a woman who's in the House leadership now, um, who is very tired of hearing this story, so I'm not going to use her name, um, she uh, asked me if I was... <laughs> If um, I was interested in running for city council, and I said I'd never really thought about it, and uh, then I said, "Can't you get anybody else?" And she said, "Well, we did," and they all said no. And so I um, looked into it, and the guy that I was running against um, was a guy who had a history of um, not non-inclusion, let's say, of um, our. Uh, uh, of our Latino and our black community. Was that Dave, Dave, Dave Ralston? That was Dave Ralston. I've been hearing some stuff about, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Dave, there, there were a couple of things that, um, that that were triggering, uh, that, that sort of, um, got me into the race. One was that, um, Dave had said that, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember, oh, Centro Latino Americano, which is a, um, uh, um, an outreach group um, to recent immigrants. Um, he he said that um, anybody who accepted the help of Central Latino Americano must be here illegally. And then he also said that, um, that there was a Pacific Islander woman who wanted to be on the police advisory committee. He said, we already have a minority on the police advisory committee. And so I thought, you know, the, at, at the time that I ran, I, it was very sort of opportune um, because the business community had more or less decided that it wasn't really it wasn't really a great idea to have somebody saying those things on the city council and they they didn't endorse me the business community i didn't get the chamber's endorsement or the board of realtors endorsement or the timber endorsement but they they sort of stayed out of that race as a result of what was going on wow and it's i mean so i was things are changing so much you know the demographic of the of the council uh, now and I mean just the conversation of who's in local leadership you know we just had a race with Mark Molina where uh, he was yes. he was unsuccessful he's a good friend you know and I he was telling me about, he was telling me a lot about the Dave Ralston days and stuff and so there's it's interesting to me how many people haven't been here for very long that are in leadership because I have lived in Springfield I've bounced back and forth between Eugene and Springfield but I, I grew up I went to middle school and high school in Springfield you know, so I've seen right. a lot of drastic changes 
and a lot for the better. But there's also kind of this pullback that we're kind of feeling right now where people are like, wait a minute, let's not get too go too far. And, and it, that means just the work is not done by any means. So, no, not at all. So, no. you know, we're going to be today. We're going to talk a lot about labor. Uh, next week, I'm going to be interviewing an employee from Space Buds, which is a local dispensary. And they just recently helped to push to unionize. So having worked with the Teamsters uh, for you, having worked with the Teamsters for decades, what's your take on employees at organizations like Space Buds and Starbucks uh, pushing to unionize? I think it's way overdue. I, I wish that the uh, the Starbucks um, people had gotten uh, a little bit more of a head start. Um, right right now, there's you, you know I think the the people at Starbucks are so deserving of representation right now. I mean, they work hard and are not given a lot of input into the way that their workplace operates. And so I, uh, my, my only frustration right now is that the group that is representing the Starbucks workers is out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Workers United. I've, I've, pl- I've placed a call um, as far as I know, nobody at the Starbucks locations has ever met any of the people from Workers United. It's been strictly an online and phone and telephone relationship. And I would love for them to see some boots on the ground right now and see some people who are actually representing their interests out here. And, you know, it's not that I'm trying to poach them or raid them in any way. I, you know, I, I, I just want Workers United to take um, an active role in the uh, in the organizing campaigns right now because they're going to need it. I mean, the the companies are very resourceful in mounting anti-union campaigns once these even even once the cards have come in and they've authorized by election the union representation, the the anti-union campaign never ends. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the the captive audience meetings never end. Um, they never they um, that they, they're more subtle about them after the election. But um, what what I don't want to see is any sort of um, is any any sort of backsliding on the uh, on the part of these units. I hope that they stay solid. Yeah, I'm looking forward to learning more about. Uh, the the dispensary situation because it's such a new industry and it's not even really federally recognized. So it's going to be interesting to right. hear what he has to say. Dakota Lasea is my guest and he came on uh, a while back because he had just blasted an opinion that I posted on somewhere on social media on a public forum. And I was like, instead of us arguing, let's become friends. <laughs> and so I messaged him and I right. had him on and he's a young guy. And I, and I did the episode called The Youth Vote. So everyone tune in next week. That's going to be a really cool one. I want to talk a little bit about unions, corporations, and government, you know, uh, and kind of what the roles of each area is in our society. Back when I first started this podcast, I had Rick Dancer on, and him and I talked about this. And he said something. He was like, oh, unions and corporations, like we're talking big corporations, right? Unions and corporations, they're one in the same. And I just totally disagree with that. I've always been very pro-union. Uh, and it just kind of, I, I told him a joke that I wanted to tell you. In 2009, uh, you know, the Tea Party movement was really strong. And some young people may not remember this, you know, but the Tea Party basically was an, it was a Republican movement that was designed to basically just eliminate any tax. They just wanted as low as taxes as possible and, and cut government spending. So that may, the goal was 
they say, to basically make it towards uh, having, um, uh, you know, less government programs and whatnot. And it's basically just the, the conservative attitude where it's like, you're on your own. It's like bootstraps kind of stuff. And the joke that I heard was that there's three people sitting at a table. There's a union boss, there's a corporate CEO, and a Tea Party voter. You, you may have heard this. And there's a dozen cookies sitting in the middle of the table. The corporate CEO yeah. grab, grabs 11 cookies and then looks at the Tea Party voter and says, hey, that union guy is trying to take your cookie. <laughs> you know? Yeah. you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, that, that, that's definitely a, a, um, a, a very apposite and inappropriate joke in this context. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, and, I, I, I've, I've heard I've, I've also heard that. Um, told about the um, uh, about the immigrant workers, you know sure. the, the, that that immigrant is trying to take your cookie. You yeah. know uh, there there are so many uh, so many different contexts in which that works, and it, and it's almost always true. Yeah, and I mean this attitude, you know, it's like I've always I've been very vocal. I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. Like I I've I've taken a lot of my my uh, talking Bernie. points, you know, from that kind of strategy where we need to be pro worker, we need to be. Uh, I mean, honestly, like, you know, helping people on disability, people that may, can't, maybe can't even work, you know, so we need to be taking care of people with protections and safety nets, you know, and then and I think the Democratic yeah. Party was once known as the party of the working class voter, you know, and very much right. pro union, the ethos, like I said, being about protections, safety nets and workers rights. Uh, yes. Is the party still no, the we, better? We... Go ahead. Is the, is the party still identified as the working class well, party? Well, what I was going to say, um, do you think it, that it's still the pro-union party? Um, I, I think that there was a time when um, when, when it was. Um, I, I think the Democrats could uh, lay claim to be the pro-union party. And I, I certainly hope to get us back there. Um, I, I think in the early 90s, the, uh, the Democratic Leadership, uh, Leadership Council, DLC, um, made a lot of inroads with the Clinton administration and with the party establishment in just uh, turning it into this concept of the Democrats being the party of the professional classes um, and being more about just trying to shore up the other uh, professional and the managerial classes as the as the base of the party on the theory that the that labor had nowhere to go and you know what i mean i in fairness to them i i don't think that labor has really given itself anywhere to go in the last 20 years we needed to we we need to find it uh, find a place that we can uh, that we can be demanding and have leverage over the uh, over the democratic party because i i don't think that there there are lots of Parts of the Democratic Party that don't care about working people. No, now, obviously Bernie identifies as a uh, he he caucuses with the Democrats anyway, and he's certainly he's certainly somebody who represents the interests of working people. Um, I I think that what we have to do is we have to get back to a place where we actually uh, the, the the Democrats are, have been noticeably non-supportive of the Amazon campaign, for instance. Um, I don't. I don't know if you've uh, followed this, but they're very nervous because Amazon is a big Democratic contributor. Um, I, I don't think they want to alienate Amazon, and I think that there's a there there's definitely a big segment of the um, uh, of the Democratic establishment that does not want to upset the apple cart. They probably don't want to upset Howard Schultz, for that matter. 
I, I, I think they're being sort of guarded and sort of measured in their approach to the Starbucks campaign as well. I think that that so, just, I mean, I mean and that just sums up that. the biggest issue I see in politics is the money, just the money in it, you know, just the money that controls campaigns and, and then controls policy. And so, uh, you know, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know the Democrat, that Amazon was a democratic, uh, supporter. You know, I, I would, I kind of would assume otherwise. I, I mean, I didn't know that. That's interesting. They, they, they've given, they, they give money to both sides. I okay. mean, it's, uh, you know, the, if you look at the oil companies, I mean, you know, they're, they're not just a democratic contributor. The, the oil companies are very smart too. They give, uh, they give money to both parties. So you're and saying so, Democrat, you know, small D like, yeah. To, like, yeah. So they just have a lot of say in what's happening in, in elections and just continue to maintain power. You know, back in 2009, that, right. that whole thing I was talking to you about with Rick Dancer, that's the thing. It's like with Democrats and the, the quick, <laughs> the quick version of it to me was always with Democrats. Uh, you have big government with, with Republicans, you have unfettered big corporations, which one's better. You know, and that's where he was trying to be like, well, definitely the corporations. I'm like, no, like, absolutely not. The different the reason that unions, to, if you're going to compare unions to corporations, the reasons that unions are still more uh, something that I could support is because the idea is to protect workers. It's not just to make record profits. That's not all it's about. It's, you know, right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I and, and li listen closely, because this is the one time that I'm going to agree with Rick Dancer about anything. I think that there are there is a danger that the, the unions, when they get too big and too centralized in their uh, in their power structure, they do start to resemble corporations. Sure. Um, there, there was a thinker back in the 19th century named Bakunin, um, who whose critique of labor unions was that the further a uh, a labor leader gets from the workers the more he starts to resemble one of the management um and i think it's true you know in 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 my union um the the, the last administration um james hoffa jr and his uh, and and his people were all um, playing golf with the executives at the employers and were getting a lot cozier with those guys than they were with the members and it's inevitable that when you start talking to management more than you are to your own members, then you're going to start thinking like them. Well, and you and said it's a problem. You said straight up. I mean, in the title of the Teamsters Union that you work with, the local is it 205? The local 205. That's a huge important word right there because what you were talking yes. about with Starbucks when it's and I don't know enough about it to to speak badly on them the union there, but like what you said, like you said, it's across the country. How could that you know? How could they fully know? what's going on in the lives of a worker in Springfield, Oregon. You know what I mean? So right. it's, and when you get to be so big that you've gotten far away from the little guy, that's a problem period period. And so, yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of what he was getting at. And like you said, it's a rare time that maybe we, we can agree on some things. So now changing gears there, there, there are unions that have what, what are called super locals and they're sort of creeping away from the concept of a local. There, there are unions that have a super local that goes from Miami up to um, New England, and wow. that to me defeats the purpose. Of local. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think you know. I, I think we absolutely need representation. If uh, on Friday I got a call at the Florence UPS Center uh, because one of our members was in trouble, and I drove out to Florence, you know, I that's not possible when you're have, when you're representing members from Philadelphia. No, absolutely. Now changing gears a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about Tuesday's midterm, uh, kind of both locally and, and nationally. 
uh, one of the things is that it's like there. I've seen a really a big increase in civic participation, but I wonder sometimes if it's mainly just on social media. You know, if it's actually people getting out and and doing something. The turnout it looks like statewide was in the thirty percent range. I mean, it's really low. You know, yeah, like thirty, like thirty five, thirty five percent. Maybe it's going to get to forty when it's all yeah. counted. But I mean, still, what, what what do you? Why do you think that is? Why do you think the turnout is so low? Now I know historically. Midterms, uh, Republicans turn out for midterms and Democrats don't, you know, but why do you think that is? Well, you know, um, I, I think that one one thing that uh, one blunder that um, that former President Trump made um, in the wake of his election uh, of, uh, of his loss in 2020 was that he um, created this impression of de- of um uh, delegitimizing the uh, the election process itself, and so a lot of his people, for instance, in Georgia, when there were these runoffs um, for the Senate, a lot of his people stayed home because they didn't think the the election was going to um, be legitimate, and they they didn't bother to vote. And I think there are a lot of people that think that everything's decided before you even, uh, before they even uh, fill out their ballots and stick them in the mail. And yeah. I, I I regret that. I lament it um, because it happens on our side too. Yeah. And unfortunately, you see local elections like I don't think they've announced a winner yet in the county commissioner race for Springfield for uh, Joe Bernie versus David Lovell. But it's it's within like 101 votes as of right now is what it says on the secretary of state's website. And oh, my gosh, it's it's so scary to me. The change that we could see by just that one seat changing hands. Joe Bernie is is somebody that's extremely pro worker, you know, and uh, just I mean, he's he's he's, been. He's been a tremendous ally to workers during his term, and it's, I think, a measure of how consequential um, Joe Bernie's term as commissioner has been that the timber industry and the real estate, uh, the Board of Realtors came at him as, as hard as they did was just a measure of how much um, how much power and how much influence he's had yeah. in policy at the countywide level. You know, for me, just as a podcaster, I worry about accessibility. Now, to be fair, I haven't reached out to David Lovell or talked to him. And maybe if he is the winner, maybe I will try and try to kind of at least hear what he has to say, but also hopefully that he would hear what I have to say, you know, and, and someone like me, uh, cause I mean, this is a small town and I think that I have a pretty substantial voice, you know, in this town, I've lived here a long time. And so, uh, we'll see how it goes. Hey, I uh, do. Do do me a do me a favor. Um, uh, I know that Mark's opponent, who has apparently won, uh, Victoria Doyle, um, she uh, she is a union member. Yeah, you ought to uh, reach out to her and just um, get get her take on la- on local labor issues. I would um, like to because it would certainly be helpful to me. There was some things. Yeah, there was some things that she said uh, in forums that at least gave me some hope that she was willing to listen, but I know that's campaigning and we'll see, you know, but I'm not going to hold my breath, but we will, we'll see how that goes down the road. Now I want to talk a little bit about some of the local city council and school board meetings. There's been some extremely threatening behavior recently. Uh, I've been reading stuff about threats of violence at the school board meetings. Uh, You know, a lot of it's virtual, you know? And so that, that's sometimes maybe some people get a little more aggressive online, but uh, is th- I haven't been paying as close of attention f- for a decade. You know, I've been paying attention for the last five years to, you know, to Springfield or even less. 
uh, as far as local go city government. This podcast, which has been four years long, is how I've learned about a lot of city government. But what can we do to lower the temperature, you know, in these in these meetings where people are just screaming vitriol? Well, I I think that it's um, that this is going to be sort of a boring uh, politician's answer, but I think we have to we're we're going to have to lower the temperature at a national level. I um, I I think that the outrage machine a lot people are making a lot of money off the outrage machine in the twenty four hour news cycle, and um, I think the the people that are going to um, the school board meetings and screaming about the vaccine and about masking are being manipulated. And they're being manipulated at a national scale. Um, I, I think on a local level, I, I as a, as a result of this election, that this commissioner's race uh, should not have been closed. Uh, commissioner Bernie has done immense has done immense work on behalf of workers and on behalf of the voters in Springfield. And the fact that these sort of hot button issues, uh, the vaccines and um, the wildfires. Um, pe people are just unhappy and unsettled in general, and they're taking it out on the incumbents. And I think that the people in the unions, it's incumbent on us to try and talk to our members and keep their focus on issues that affect them on a daily basis. Um, of course, the vaccine did for a while. Um, wildfires did for a while, but I think we need to just try and convince our members that the solution to the wildfires is not to cut all the trees down. Yeah. I mean, uh, trees <laughs> trees are not necessarily the only cause of wildfires. I, I think that they're, uh, you know, you, you could argue that they're one of them, um, but I don't think that they're the one that we need to worry about. Yeah. We need what we need to worry about is the um, is all of the effects that we're causing. Yeah. Um, to to make that to, to make wildfires a, a clear and present danger to all of us, and I I think the what what we need to do is just educate educate our voters in in a non elitist non condescending way about how we it, it benefits all of us for the wage scales to go up. One of the good things about the pandemic is that people are making a lot more money right now and have a lot more power in the workplace because people are realizing that they're being they're being oppressed by their employers. I mean, and that's that's coming with that's coming with more costs, you know, unfortunately. But that being yeah. said, that I, I'm a fan of that. If there's more, co not of the more costs, I'm a fan of the more flexibility. If you have more money, you have more flexibility so you can choose where you put your money, hopefully. Now, I want to say this, though, that in the 4J situation, and I agree with you that it starts at the national level that to lower the temperature. But on the 4J situation, we're seeing stuff that I don't know if there's any, we can't, like, we're seeing threats of violence about guns, about, about, uh, they want to have concealed carry laws on campuses, high school campuses. And this is a push. I that, didn't even know that. Yeah. It's a pretty, pretty wild true? scene. Yeah. Wow. The last scene was pretty ugly. And, you know, this is scary to me that, that we have, I mean, we're seeing, you know, a continuation of, of violence that is basically coming from, from this replacement theory and white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, Right. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, and There's the, the cat making a cameo. Nice. 
beset beset by cats yeah um so uh, yeah no i um i i agree with you on the second amendment stuff too i mean that's one of the things that i constantly hear from members from, from teamster members is that they want to take our guns and so what you do is, if if you're afraid that the government is going to be coming after your guns then you arm yourself and you decide that you need to have a concealed weapon um, it's a, it's a reaction to the things that you're concerned about. Um, yeah. can I, can I go on a little bit of a tangent Absol right now? Absolutely. Um, there, there, you got the floor. Thanks. Okay. There, there was a DJ in Atlanta, um, an afternoon talk radio, um, host, um, named David Paul. And so he was a master of the 24 hour news cycle. Um, he would have a different hot button issue every day. One, one day he decided he was mad at the Russians. And so he wanted um, America to end its exports of potatoes to the Russians because it wouldn't allow them to make vodka. And so it would bring their way of life to an end. And so about an hour into the show, a caller actually looked some of this stuff up and found out, number one, they don't make vodka out of potatoes anymore. And number two, that we're actually a net importer of potatoes from Russia, not an exporter. And so normally this would more or less just uh, run your show to ground, right? I mean, uh, that it, it, would, it would more or less just end the show. But uh, David Paul instantly reversed course and said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. We need to end these imports of potatoes from Russia because they're trying to kill us with these fried potatoes we're eating. And so for the rest of the show, they everybody just talked about uh, fried potatoes and how terrible they were. And so I, I think, um, you know, just the, 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 the point that David Paul, I think, can actually um, show us is that the outrage machine is not always rational. Um, you have issues that you get your uh, that you get your listeners and your audience whipped up about. And whether it's wokeness, um, you know, I, I would imagine that people are probably coming to these uh, school meetings uh, wanting to talk about critical race theory and wanting sure. to talk about um, about grooming and talking about um, pedophilia and whatever what, whatever they've been told to be outraged about, they're going to be outraged about. And it's a concern because I think that we we do have we do have problems with our school systems right now. I think that a lack of critical thinking is part of why we're in the fix we're in right now. And I that that's what people should be going to school board meetings and hollering about is just the fact that the schools right now are falling down to a certain extent in it, in their obligation to teach. Uh, a rising generation of workers, how to think critically. Yeah, um, that 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 to me would be a legitimate issue. Yeah, and I mean it, it's it's just so scary because, like you said, there's so much misinformation out there. So these people are just just driven to anger on stuff that's not even really based in facts. But then we can't, as a society, agree on facts. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty dangerous thing. I mean, my dad and I talk. You know, we talk about COVID stuff, and he's very conservative. And yet he takes COVID as serious as anyone I've ever met. You know, I mean, he's he's very careful and he's and he's very uh, worried, which that it should never have been political. But my when I when I bring it up to him, I'm like uh, two issues. One is COVID. And I'll get to that one in a second. But but I say like, well, you know, you're supporting candidates 
that are that are against COVID regulations, and he's like, "No, they're not." And I'm like, "Yeah, they are. Like they they literally they say they are to you, and you still they clearly refuse are. to acknowledge that. That's one issue. The second issue is Social Security. With him, I'm like, he's like, well, you know, he had literally told me that Biden is trying to take his Social Security, and I'm like, how is that even possible? I mean, that's not even <sighs> remotely based in fact. And and I love my father you know, very much so. And, and I've learned so much. And I'm grateful that I grew up in a home that he was a conservative uh, Christian man for the reasons that I lived there. And I lived at one point with my lesbian Democrat mom. <laughs> and so I have a very broad uh, kind of base, you know what I mean? And where I was uh, getting my values, you know? And so, you, you know, uh, the, the interesting thing is, you know, your dad, I'm, I'm sure he's probably read Rick Scott's 11, uh, 11 points to save America. And one of them is literally to sunset Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. He says it in black and white. Right. And so I, I would think that that would get his attention. Yeah. I mean, ask, ask him about that the next time you talk to well, him. Well, anybody that knows me knows that, especially, I have to be sometimes careful on the podcast because I am a Democrat and I don't want to throw my own party under the bus, but I am very critical of my own team. And that's a healthy thing to do. You know, you know, and so, so what I don't want to do is I don't want to give fuel for the enemy when they're unwilling to do the same. You know, it's like, we want to call balls and strikes on ourselves, but only when you're having somebody that's coming at you in good faith, because if you have somebody from the opposition party that is unwilling to do the same, all they're going to do is capitalize on your times of vulnerability, you know? And so I, I, I can't remember who it is that said this. It might've been NHL Lincoln, uh, but what, what this what this person said was that every decent person is ashamed of his own government, and I think that there's something that there there's something to be said for that. There there are things that you can always do, no matter how good and how functional your government is. There are things that you're not doing, and there are things that you should be doing. And if you're not if you're not constantly thinking about how to do things better, then you're backsliding. So I got a couple more things I want to talk about. Uh, one thing is we're going to see a lot of stuff about Betsy Johnson in, in the state of Oregon, you know, and it seems like there's a lot of ads. I've been hearing that Phil Knight has donated a sizable amount to her campaign. Uh, there's this desire for, and I think Democrats need to listen to this kind of stuff because there's a desire for third party type candidates. My dad is already starting to support her. The knock on her, we'll see what happens by November if by conservatives is that she's just a Democrat. You know, she's a rhino is what they like to call him, you know, but that's the, what wow. I hear conservatives saying. Yeah, she's not. But that's what I can hear. But my point is, is that I think that there's an opportunity with these third party candidates to bring people not I don't want to say to the middle, but to bring people to the table where we can have constructive conversations. I believe I'm not supporting her campaign. That's not my point. But we've seen it before with Rand Paul. We've seen it with Bernie Sanders. Very different types of candidates that presented something that was not the, the two party mainstream system. And there and Ross Perot. You remember Ross Perot in the 90s that there's a lot of conservatives of that would support that can't, my dad told me he's like I voted for Perot so he though he's very conservative he was willing to entertain the thought of 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 a different you know an alternative to that so it's going to be really interesting to see 
what happens with the Betsy Johnson campaign. Now, last week, Jim Couples was extremely critical of her saying that she's anti-climate, that, you know, that there's a lot of stuff that, that I, I'm not aware much about her. I don't know much of her history. But, I mean, do you think that there's something to be learned from the fact that these third-party candidates, they rise up and have a huge backing and a huge following and passionate supporters? How do we rein yeah. that into the two-party system? Because I know that, it, you know, Bernie, like you had said, Bernie had ran as a Democrat, but the party would not allow it. And I mean, I'll say that till I'm blue in the face, that they refused to allow it. He would have absolutely won the primary election if it wasn't for all of the people on Super Tuesday backing out. And then he would have won the general election against Trump handily. There's no question in my mind. Yeah. You know, so I don't know what I mean. Everybody's saying we want change. And then when they present change, people are like, not that, though. <laughs> you know, you know, so I don't start, know. Start uh, star voting would be a start. Um, it almost won. Um, last time it, it got 46% of the vote. I, I think uh, preferred choice, preferred choice voting of some kind is that is going to be essential if we're going to incorporate the third, um, the third party um, candidates. And I, I think that the, the, the duopoly, yeah, the democratic Republican um, two, two headed Hydra um, is definitely fighting hard against preferred choice voting for that very reason. They want to continue their sort of hegemony over the electoral process. And we need to have, we need to have voices that are, uh, that, that are outside of the, uh, outside of the uh, Capitol Hill system and network. Um, Perot, um, Perot wasn't wrong about everything. He was right about the deficit. And when, um, when when Clinton took office, you can bet you know Perot's people got ninth. Perot got nineteen percent, I think, in ninety two. That's big. And you 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 can bet you can bet that Clinton jumped right on the deficit right after that. I mean, he. I, I I'm not sure that deficits are as important as I used to, um, but. Right. I, he, he wasn't he wasn't wrong about it. And he, he wasn't wrong about corporations outsourcing jobs either. There are lots of jobs that are never going to be coming back as a result of NAFTA and as a result of our trade agreements. So we're going to have to do something about the we're going to have to modify the trade agreements to make them more equitable and more fair to everyone. Yeah, I just think and that it's, it's that that was that was something Perot was jumping on, though. I just Go think ahead. that these third party candidates uh, I think that there's a lot to be learned from them. I don't necessarily think that they should win. <laughs> like, like you just said, though, the Perot getting 19% was substantial, probably won Clinton the election, <laughs> you know, but, but also, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to be learned. I think Bernie Sanders, in some ways, I wonder if him losing was better for the country because if he would have won and it didn't work overnight, cause it would have been such swift changes that it could have been, interesting to see how it played out but in some ways the I, policies I, are slowly being implemented you know and so it's a trade-off well, well just to state the obvious the republicans would have started trying to impeach bernie sanders the first day that he took office fact i mean they they they, they, they would uh they they would be um trying to gum up the works with impeachment hearings from the moment that he took uh, that he took office but in the meantime Bernie had a plan. He he was going to overrule the Senate parliamentarian that's keeping um, any sort of reform from the filibuster from taking place. Um, he was planning on doing. Um, he was planning on issuing executive orders that actually helped people instead of hurting people the way that Trump and Bush have. And I, I, 
I've got to say, I, I, I mourn, I mourn every day that there, that there probably won't be a Bernie Sanders administration. Probably not an administration. However long it, he's talking about running. However long it lasted. Yeah. Uh, oh, is he? Yeah. Is, is he talking about running in twenty? I've, I've been hearing some I, stuff I that he's that. not. He's not ruling it out. I guess you can be nine hundred years old and be and be a candidate. I mean, if the if if <laughs> if uh, it's not even. I mean, Bernie is. Joe Biden and and Donald Trump are both in the same demographic. You know, they're very. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be ageist. It's just that the issues of of for, being forward thinking. I think uh, you know we need to get a little bit more youth influence in there for sure. Yeah. Well. Well. Hey, I'm 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 900 years old and I'm a candidate. So you're 800 I, years I, old. I, I, yeah. There's there's definitely no eight, eight, 800. Right. Sorry. Right. Yeah. You're right. Well, Leonard um, Stairs. So so anyway. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was no, gonna that, say. That's all I, I was gonna say. Hey, it's it's an honor to really get to chat with you. I'm a big fan of of what you're doing uh, on the council, and and I look forward to just continuing to learn more about this whole process. Uh, I really appreciate how accessible people have been. When I started interviewing people for the podcast in the political world, I was I was overwhelmed with Eugene, to be fair. And I live in Springfield and I was like, well, maybe if I start tackling Springfield city government, it'll be a little bit more digestible because it's just a smaller town and there's a, it's, it's a smaller, uh, it's just, it's a lot less to kind of focus on. There's still the same you know, massive issues of homelessness and all, all kinds of stuff that happen, but I can digest a little more. And I've learned a tremendous amount. And I just appreciate the accessibility that when I reach out to you to be a guest, that you seem enthusiastic about it and that I get treated fairly and honestly, because I'm just a barber that is learning on this stuff as I go, you know? And so I just appreciate hey, uh you're you're a very well-informed barber you're sort of the platonic ideal for me of what a voter should be because you're curious and you're willing to do your homework in finding and sort of getting to the bottom of what these issues are and i appreciate i appreciate your podcast and i appreciate you yeah thank you so much for saying that uh if anybody's listening you want to shout uh, set you know I, on the tagline, you can read on the bottom. If you want to make a happy patty, you can make a donation on Venmo. It's at spent the rent, or you can go to my website, strpod.com slash sponsors. Uh, just go to strpod and click around. There's a donate button and you can donate through Patreon or PayPal for a monthly donation, or the link is right there for Venmo. Uh, and it really helps me a lot. I just bought this new mic and it was not cheap. And my girlfriend is going to kick me out if I keep spending money on this podcast and it doesn't become a little bit fruitful. I don't do it for money, but I definitely uh, would like to break even, you know? And so uh, I'm going pretty pretty uh, hard into this and I, I've been doing this for four years and I'd like to really start uh, advertising. I think I'm ready to start marketing it so that I can reach an audience that I haven't reached for so far. It's been very organic, which has been awesome, you know, and a lot of my guests are my friends that I've met through the podcast, or I've had guests that became friends and I've had friends that have became guests, but it's been really fun. And I've learned a, a, just a tremendous amount, but Leonard Stair city Springfield city council. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I know today you're going to be Hopping on a plane, heading. So that's why we did this early in the day, is because you're going to be heading to Rhode Island. Is that correct? That's right. I um, I, I'm I'm going to be uh, representing the uh, passenger transportation members out here in the West at a uh, at a hearing um, in Rhode Island. So yeah, yep. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to seeing Providence for the first time in a long time. I uh, when I was a Navy brat, I, I was through there, but 
not not for any length of time. So in your tra- travels as a Navy brat, where was your favorite place that you lived? Is that is that even possible to say? Um, well, you know, when I was five and six years old, San Diego was a great place to live because there was the uh, there was the zoo and there was the beach and there was Tijuana. I mean, even sure. back even back then, at that point in my life, I could appreciate how different Tijuana was. I mean, you know, with their uh, the, uh, tattoo parlor and dental extraction uh, businesses, um, I loved. I, I mean, I, I love Knott's Berry Farm. I love Disneyland. I yeah. mean, for, for a five and six year old, it was the best place in the world to live. So at the time, uh, at the time, I loved that. Um, if, if I could, uh, you know, if I could get have any choice, I would probably live in New Orleans now. I mean, if I were a, if I had a backup to Springfield, Oregon, then that would probably be a solid second choice. But, yeah, San Diego you know, is then, near uh, near and dear to my heart. Both of my parents are from San Diego. Uh, and so my grandparents and all that lived in San Diego. And so I've spent some time down there and it is beautiful. And as far as Southern California, that's probably the only place I would consider living Los Angeles. Absolutely not, <laughs> you know, but it's been a long time yeah. since I've been down there, but I need to make it back down there. My, uh, my parents were, well, my, my grandparents were really good friends with Bill Walton's parents because my dad went to high school. Oh, with Bill, okay. Yeah. With in, in San Diego. So it is very near and dear to my heart, and I agree with you. It's an it's an amazing place to be. So, hey, we're going to get yeah. out of here. Yeah. Leonard Stair, thank you so much for doing this. This is the Spent the Rent podcast. Uh, I appreciate you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Patty. So we're going to end this with a song. Uh, I chose this song. It's called Lesson One by Buffalo Romeo. Everything changes. Nothing remains. Like family photographs From way back in the day Moments together Sweet fleeting few Yeah, well they dance in my dreams But fade from my view Thank you for your kindness Thank you for the kiss Thank you for kicking my ass At the edge of the abyss All lesson one is letting go Lesson two is letting go Lesson three, letting go Be a quiz on Friday Everything changes, nothing remains Except the lessons I have learned Or stepped in on the way You know where to find me Hey, follow the sun Yeah, and when you do, you'll find my feet Right back on square one yeah, thank you for your presence Touching your skin, yeah Thank you for reminding me How damn lonely I have been Lesson one is letting go 
Lesson two is letting go Lesson three, letting go The quiz on Friday I'll be fine by friends. 